So when we start thinking about who God is, we start thinking about who God is. Um, let me just read two New Testament scriptures real quickly. In First and Second Timothy, there's a succession of songs. There's a succession of songs, early Christian hymns that were, that were sung by the church. The first one is in First Timothy chapter 1. Listen to the, listen to the language that is used. The, 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 the language, verse 17, Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. I mean, those are really big words, aren't they? Those are really big words. Those are words that really put me in my place, right? Those are, those are massive words. Those are words that, that make, it, make it difficult for me to relate to God, if I'm, if I'm honest, right? He's eternal, he's immortal, he's invisible, and he's only wise, right? Those are all big words. Now, the, 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 the phrase that was, that was brought up is, where's this inaccessible thing come from, right? Where does that? Well, that's hymn number three. That's the third hymn in, in first, uh, first Timothy. That's First Timothy chapter six. Um, if I start in verse 15, uh, well, let me start in verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, he encourages Timothy to keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, in light inaccessible. Right? There it is, right? In light inaccessible. To whom be honor and power forever. So can I just say this? Can I just say this? I don't know, I don't know which way, I don't know which way to which part to emphasize. I'm not sure what happens. I don't know if we don't properly understand this from the beginning, and we've never really properly understood this. Or if at some point we got so accustomed to our Christian faith that we lost sight of certain things. But can I tell you that 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 the accessibility of God hinges upon the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without what Jesus did, God would be totally inaccessible to you. Like the scripture that talks about the fact that we can enter boldly into is because of what Jesus has done. It's because we have a high priest who has made the way possible for us. My brothers and sisters, what Jesus did at the cross is outrageously and unspeakably powerful. It took two beings that were complete that were completely it took these beings who were completely unfit to enter into the presence of God and made the presence of God available to us. I mean it's incredible what Jesus did at the cross for us. You and I there was an uncrossable barrier a God whose light is so pure and so holy that that sinful human beings would have been eviscerated, eviscerated by the blinding light of his holy presence. We, we wouldn't have been able to stand there. And yet, what Jesus did is so outrageously powerful and so completely uh, uh, efficacious 
that you and I can not only get there, but we can go there boldly. It's amazing what Jesus has done for us. It's amazing what Jesus has done for us. Now, in the, in the, in the go boldly, we have to remember that the go boldly is the, is the result of Jesus' work. That kind of bedrock is this kind of high, exalted, unapproachable God. And that Jesus, he's not the approachable member of the Trinity. He's the one who made the unapproachable Trinity approachable to us. Right? He's the one that made the unapproachable God, all three persons, approachable because he sacrificed himself for us. Right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing what Jesus did for us at the cross. It's an amazing door that was opened to us by, by what the Lord Jesus did at the cross. These big attributes, I think, are helpful for us to, to go back to every once in a while and, and just kind of take in, again, the seriousness of, of who this God is, right? So, yeah, thank you. Don't, don't apologize. Thank you for bringing it up. I love it. I love it. All right, let me close my King James and go to the New American Standard. I'd like to ask you to turn to Genesis 18. So... Uh, the version of the message I'm going to preach this morning is, a, is an abbreviated version. And with next Sunday being um, graduation Sunday, I'm going to have to kind of think about what this is going to look like. But uh, for this morning, I'm going to focus on just one piece of, of the message that I've prepared. I want to focus on, on uh, Genesis 18, I want to start in verse 20, and I'm going to read, uh, read a bit of an extended passage. So, Genesis 18, verse 20. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Wilt thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Wilt thou destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the twenty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Man, 
I mean, there's just so much in that passage that, that I'd like to have time for this morning. Can I just ask how many of you have ever wondered how far down Abraham would have been able to negotiate with God? You ever wondered that? I mean, if he, just, if he hadn't stopped at 10, if he'd have pushed for 5, or if he'd have gone down to 3, what would God have said? How, how many of you ever wondered things like that? You ever think about things like that, right? I wonder how far he could have gone. I don't know. <clears throat> anyway, there's a lot. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot to ponder. In this passage, there's a lot that, that we could unpack from Abraham's interaction with God. And so we might stay in this text for a couple of weeks. We'll see how it goes. Um, but this morning, I want to focus on, I was going to say, one basic truth in two parts, but we're only going to focus on one part of one basic truth. I think we're just going to stay focused on one this morning. So I'll tell you more about what that is in just a second. How many of you, how many of you have ever heard, the, you've heard the name, you've heard the name Friedrich Nietzsche, right? How many of you know anything about him? You know at least something about him, okay? Friedrich Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche. So he's famous for his God is dead quote, right? His God is dead quote. He went on from there to say that without God, there is no such thing as objective truth or objective morality. For him, that was a logical conclusion, especially uh, I think especially as a Western thinker, that would be a logical conclusion. Western culture had been so shaped by Judeo-Christian understanding of the world that, that Nietzsche, I'm sorry, thank you, that Nietzsche a- uh, accurately, accurately observed that at least for the West, at the very least for the West, um, if there is no God then all that we have built based upon who God is, all that we understand about life based upon who God is, if there's no God, it all falls apart, right? So if our our concept of truth is based on the existence of God and there's no God, what does that do to the concept of truth? If our morality is based on the existence of God and there is no God, what does it do for our morality? It changes our, our perspective on morality entirely. So, so this, this God is dead proclamation, um, uh, at least for the West, uh, uh, was then accurately followed up with uh, by observing that if God is indeed dead, then there is no truth and there is no morality. There is no absolute truth and there is no absolutely binding morality. Now, I suspect that his observation is equally true whether you're in the East or the West. That if there is no God, then, then there is no objective reality. There's no objective. Like, you can, you can, if there's no God, then you have to ask yourself, based upon what do we, do we um, uh, make moral conclusions, Right? And, and how do we get to morality from, from, uh, from the point of n- there being no God to answer to, 
to respond to, right? So I, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of thinking that needs to be done about how is it possible for there to be a morality apart from God. Now, a lot of that thinking goes on and happens uh, on a fairly regular basis. Nietzsche's statement there, God is dead, and as a result, so is absolute truth and absolute morality. Those statements have been disagreed with by just about everybody at one time or another, including atheists. So one of the things, uh, let me take it in, in order. The, the Christian faith, in all of its various forms, just looks at Nietzsche and says, oh, poor little guy. God's not dead at all. <laughs> like, and I say poor little guy deliberately. It's like, here's a mere mortal proclaiming that God is dead. Like, you're way above your pay grade to make such a statement, right? You're, 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 you're beyond what any human being can, can really say. And so from a Christian perspective, we look at that statement and we go, no, God's not dead at all. We don't believe God's dead at all. We believe he's very much alive, and he's very much real, and he's very much actively involved in his creation. So, our, our, our dear friend, we disagree with you, and we disagree with the idea that truth and morals are not absolute, and we do it because we still believe in a God, and we believe that this God speaks to us, and what he says to us is binding upon us. When he speaks, it's true, and, and his... His uh, standard of morality is true for us. We, we receive that. We accept that. So we disagree with, with Nietzsche's statement. Interestingly enough, many atheists who believe that God is dead, take that statement, they don't believe there is a God, they disagree with the second part of this. They will struggle with whether or not there is anything, any such thing as absolute truth. But many of them will say something like, well, we don't believe that, that the absence of God means the absence of objective morality. There are other ways that we can all agree on morality, even if there is no God. And so, you know, one of the ways we can look at it is, what about human flourishing? Like, morality should be binding on all of us if it, if it allows for human beings to live and to live well. So... We could say, we don't need God to tell us, thou shalt not murder. We can say, murder's wrong. We don't need God, just from a humanistic perspective. It wouldn't be right for one human being to kill another human being because, because that damages the ability of the human species to continue itself and to exist on earth. That's a kind of violence that is not helpful to the flourishing of the human species. So you see, we can find reasons to do the right thing that don't need God. The problem is, there always comes a point in time where this breaks down. Like, right now, we're approaching, what is it, like eight and a half billion people on planet Earth? Well, what if human flourishing has gone far enough? What if we come to the place where the scientists tell us, who are the real priests of our day, what if they tell us that in order for human life to continue on planet Earth in a healthy way for the future, we really need to thin the herd? By the way, you might think that's an outrageous idea, but it's an idea that's been floated before. 
It's not outrageous. Okay? It's not outrageous. Well, all of a sudden, the issue of morality, it would be wrong for a human being to kill another human being, is out the door. Why? Because, well, really, that moral is not an absolute. It's really just a guideline so long as it fits the other conditions. But if the conditions change, then we can get rid of that one too. Right? It's not an absolute statement that killing, that murder is wrong. It is a, it is a relative statement that it's just wrong for now. It's wrong for now. And it just becomes a question of who it is that gets to determine the rules by which that moral law still applies. Um, Darren and Lori Hersick are not here, but Darren, in conversation with me, has said to me numerous times that in his travels in other parts of the world, he has been in settings where Christians, Christians, mind you, people who have come to faith in Christ, have such a perspective on another people group that lives near them. He said, I've heard them say aloud things like, they just need to die. Now, that's an amazing statement to make. I, I wish he was here so that I didn't like, wonder if I missed But it's something close to that, right? And you think to yourself, what is it? You see, because, because when something other than divine revelation, the moral law of God, is what's informing us, it becomes a question of, who gets to determine whether or not that person is good enough or whether or not there's too many people or whatever the conditions are that justify that person's existence. And all of a sudden, the law of thou shalt not kill is all of a sudden proved to be not absolute morality. Why? Because without God, I'm really not sure that any form of morality is really sustainable there will always be a condition in which we can find our way around it and justify it. So, so, all the, so, so there's atheists that are attempting to prove that morality can be sustained apart from God. I really think their efforts fall short. I really think that there's a serious problem with trying to establish some sense of absolute morality apart from God. So I, I think that Nietzsche was actually right about the second part. That if there is no God, or if God is dead, then we've got a serious problem with truth and with morals. We've got a serious problem with truth and morals. Where do they derive from? Where do they come from if there is no God? How can we claim that there are such things if there is no God? So, so without God, I would suggest that absolute truth, absolute morality... Um, if you're using our current theme for the year, true north is no longer possible. Everything just becomes situational. Everything becomes depending on the circumstances, depending on, right? Everything becomes relative. There's no, there's no guiding truth that directs human beings. Our ability to be true north oriented in life, to, to know what truth is and to be properly oriented morally is severely compromised at best and, and I think probably impossible unless there is a God who is. Unless there is a God who is. And I would suggest that along with that, we have a serious problem if we don't properly understand what kind of God this is. 
who our God is. That our understanding of truth and our understanding of morality is seriously compromised if we don't have a clear picture of who God is. We need to understand who God is. Now, for our purposes this morning, verse 25 is going to be, is going to be our key. Verse 25 is going to be the keystone verse for us this morning. Genesis 18.25 says, Far be it from thee to do such a thing, that is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, to, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Now, let me just pause here. And one might profitably ask, what gives Abraham the nerve to say to God, if you did this, you'd be unjust? If you slayed the righteous with the wicked, God, you would be unjust. Can I tell you that that the, that the thing that gives Abraham the nerve to say something like that is because made in the image of God, we human beings can't escape the fact that there is a certain compass within us that gives us not a perfect, but at least a general orientation toward what is right and what is wrong. Now, we're messed up. And we find all kinds of ways to apply this wrongly. But, but as a general rule, the call of Scripture that tells us to repent is something that human beings are able to relate to, to know that there's a wrong that, that, that we should turn away from. So listen, if you, if, you, uh, if you sat down and you had a personal conversation with most people in this world, and you said to them, do you think it's wrong to lie? The conversation's probably going to start with something like, well, you know, I really don't know. Like, you know, most of the time, but, but some of the time, you know, it kind of depends on the circumstances. There's times when I think it's the right thing to do to lie. And, 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 and you'll start the conversation like that. And then as you continue down the conversation, well, like, how do you think the, the world works if, if lying is sometimes right and sometimes wrong? How do you know whether the other person sitting across from you is ever telling you the truth? They might be thinking that it's in this instance the best thing to do is lie. Is that, does that not make it hard for two people to relate to one? Oh, yeah, I, I guess it probably does. I mean, that's probably challenging. Um, like, uh, how comfortable are you going to be if you, if you are married and you have children, if everybody around you is lying to suit them because they think it's best for them. How's that going to work out for you? Or do you generally think it's best for people to tell the truth at least most of the time? And you know what? I I think if you talk to people long enough, what you'll discover is that most people are not so far gone yet to be able to admit somewhere along the line that that telling the truth is is at least the majority of the time, right. And that if you ask them, if you had to, if you had to put 
telling the truth and lying into the categories of right and wrong, if those were your only options, which one would you put into which category? I think most people would end up having to say, well, if I'm forced into that, then telling the truth would be in the right category and telling a lie would be in the wrong category. And the reason is simply we're made in the image of God. There's a moral aspect to us that is made in the image of God that gives us a sense. It's why even unbelievers are capable of feeling guilty when they... They're also capable of killing the feeling of guilt over time, by the way, so that they no longer feel guilty about things. But there's a sense in which we as human beings are capable of a sense of guilt because we're made in the image of God and there's a moral quality to us that corresponds with the laws of God. Corresponds. How many of you have tried the old Ray Comfort approach to, to uh, evangelism? How many of you have tried to walk people through the lawbreaker kind of thing? Right? If you've ever had a conversation with someone like that, you've seen what it's like when you say to someone, have you ever told a lie? And there's almost always a certain sheepishness about, yeah, yeah. And then when you take the next, what does that make you? Everybody gets just a little bit squirmy. Well, I guess that makes me a liar. Why? Because there's something in us that is, discom- that is uncomfortable with our own sin. Right? So, so, Moses, uh, so Abraham is in this interaction with God, and he's, he's operating, I mean, at the very least, he has a relationship with God, but at the very least, as a human being, he's looking at the world through a proper lens and saying, it would be wrong for a truly holy God to treat different people the same way if one is righteous and one is wicked. Like, that really wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be just. And so he appeals to God on this basis. And God gives him no argument. There's no, there's no debate. There's no, who are you? Right? It's like God is agreeing with the underlying premise. You're correct. I shouldn't condemn the righteous with the wicked. That, that wouldn't be just. And so there's this, there's this interaction between them. Now, in verse 25, there's two things that come out here for our purposes. One is that God has a position. And in this case, the position, it's not the only position. We could also talk about him being king of the universe. But in this verse, the one that's emphasized is he's the judge. He's the judge. He's the judge of all people. He's the judge. There's also this implication of his attributes, and that is that, um, that God must do what is right, right? That God should do what is right throughout this passage, that God would do what is right. Deal justly is the way it says, that you would deal justly. That there's a God of justice, and that would be one of his attributes. I don't think we're going to get to the attributes. We're not going to get to the attributes. Let me just talk about God as, as judge for a few minutes this morning. Let's focus on this issue of judge, and we're going to stop there. God is judge. All right. So if we think about God as judge, 
can I ask you, how many of you, is this, is this too much thinking for 10 o'clock in the morning, 11 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> okay? I know we're talking big, big ideas here. Um, God is judge. Let's just talk about this, this, this issue of being a judge. I think we have to start here. The, the issue of, of judgment in our day, how many of you agree this is a big issue in our day? The whole issue of being a judge. So, um, Planet Fitness has built an entire profitable business around the premise that there needs to be a place for people to exercise and better their health, but do so in a setting that is non-intimidating. They call that the judgment-free zone. This is the judgment-free zone. This is a place for everybody to come and exercise and improve their health without there being anyone looking down on you for the way you walk in the door. It's a judgment-free zone, okay? Um, uh, This idea of judgment is just a big deal in our day. So uh, let's let's see. Let's see. I, I, I think we'll be able to agree on this. I would suggest that one of the supreme virtues of our day, the day in which you and I are living... Um, the supreme, one of the supreme, and it may be the supreme virtue of our culture, would be something like an open-mindedness that not only tolerates, but actually affirms all the proper causes of our day. By open-mindedness, we mean not just looking at someone and saying, you have the right to do whatever you want to do, but being so open-minded that, that we actually look at another person and say, hey, what you're doing is just as good as what I'm doing. It's just as valid. Like, I'm open-minded. I can see it your way, and that's all fine. This idea of an open-mindedness that affirms, that affirms. I would suggest along with that that the great vice of our day is disagreeing with the predetermined open-mindedness that we're supposed to have. By the way, it doesn't matter how kindly you disagree. The fact that you disagree automatically puts you in the camp of being a bigot. These are the terms in which things have been established. Oh, you know, if you disagree with my lifestyle, I think you're being very judgmental and you're being discriminatory. You're being a bigot, right? You're opposing me. We're supposed to agree, and the the great vice is disagreeing no matter how kindly with the causes of our day. Now, please, see if you can follow this. I'm I'm only saying this because I'm challenged to think clearly in the morning. So the irony is that this mantra of non-judgmentalism that is being demanded of us is actually the ultimate judgmentalism because what it says is, we've already decided and you're not allowed to question it. Right? We've already decided and this is the way it is. 
the way it is is every lifestyle is equal to every other lifestyle and there's nobody that has a right to look at someone else and tell them that what they choose is wrong. We've already decided that. So stop being so judgmental. We've done it for you. They don't say that. They don't think that. But that's the truth. Amen. We've decided for you. And you must comply. And you must comply. This is the world, as far as I can tell, that it seems we're living in today. That this is being demanded. And what's expected of you is compliance. It's compliance. Now, there's a lot more we could talk about. Uh, I, th I think that if you push this idea, you'd probably get something like, well, you know, you're just kind of bitter because you've been in the majority so long. You've been an oppressor for so long that it's the turn of the oppressed to have a chance to have some power. And there would be that conversation, right? Anyway, this is the challenge. This is one of the challenges of our day. This issue of judgment is, is front and center on the table. And you're not allowed to question the predetermined wisdom that is being imposed upon everybody right now. Okay. Next part about judgment. I want to just real quickly cover three key texts, and I want to read them very quickly. Three key texts for us to consider. And we're going to get to God being the judge in just a second, but... Just staying on this subject of, of, of being a judge or of the, 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 the topic of judgment, let me just read to you three verses. First one, Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. Do not judge. The, the great proof text of our day, right? Do not judge lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. John chapter 7, verse 24 is the second one. John chapter 7, verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Do not judge according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. That's the second one. The third one is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Turn my page a couple more times here. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises, the King James reads, judges all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no man, or is judged by no man. Now, when you put these three scriptures side by side, Judge not lest you be judged. For the standard you use to judge, that standard you'll be, with, you'll be judged. Don't judge according to appearances, but judge righteous judgment. The spiritual man judges all things, yet he himself is judged by no man. How do you put those scriptures together? Well, just, just a few basic truths taken from, from those three scriptures and thinking about them, how to bring them together. The first truth is this. You and I are instructed by Scripture to judge. We must judge. Amen. We must judge. Spiritual people must judge. I say that in this sense. You and I are called to discriminate. We are called to evaluate. We are called to look at things and identify what they are. 
okay? Please hear this. Please hear this. Um, well, it, well, I was going to say it doesn't matter. We must judge. We must discriminate, right? We, we have to. We are called to do this. To not do this, to not do this, if everybody refused to judge everything, it would be complete chaos. The fact that there is one law and a police force means that judgment has been necessary. Whether or not it's God's law, whether or not it's correct, the fact of the matter is we have to live in a world that sets some boundaries around people and says to go beyond this boundary would be wrong. You can't scream fire in a crowded theater. Not right. Your freedom of speech has limitations. Why? Because your freedom of speech, if it crosses a boundary into something that's going to cause a stampede in which people die, then your freedom of speech becomes a problem. We have to do something about the boundaries around the ways these freedoms get used. Judging is just a part of life. It's a part of life. And for us as believers, it's a necessary part of life. We have to discriminate some things. We have to determine right from wrong. The second thing is, we must judge by a truth that is not our own. This is what is meant by, do not judge according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. At least in part. What does righteous judgment mean? It means that you and I are required to judge by a truth that is not our own. By a standard that's bigger than us. I mean, how righteous would it be if we just said, everybody gets to set up their own little little judgment, their own little truth. There'd be no way for people to live together. To judge righteous judgment means to to judge according to and through the eyes of God. According to what has been revealed to us as being righteous. You and I are called to do this by a truth not our own. Let me tell you something. That is a vital truth because it means that when somebody calls me out for a behavior that is not right, I have to bow to the righteous judgment of God upon my life. It means that that if I look at the world through the lens of righteous judgment, I'm as bound by it as everybody else is. Because it's bigger than me. It's bigger than me. It means that if I lie, I sin. It's, I can call you out, you can call me out. We're all under a righteous judgment. It's not one-sided. It's, we all have to live under it. We all have to live under it, this righteous judgment. The third thing is that, that we are not a, we're not supposed to live, we're not supposed to judge according to the appearances. Now let me just pause here. Because outward appearances, first of all, this is worth noting, outward appearances are deceiving, and we don't know much about what motivates people, why they do the things they do. If we could see the pain and the hurts 
that make some people do the things they do, we would have to acknowledge that two people that are engaging in the same immoral behavior are not to be judged in the same way. One just enjoys and loves immorality, and one is desperately trying to find something because they're seriously hurt and broken, and they're looking for it in all the wrong places. The conduct of both is wrong. The conduct of both is wrong. But the way we, the way we understand those two people cannot be the same. Cannot be the same. We know very little about what's behind the scenes in people's lives. This is part of the reason why there's one qualified judge in the universe, and he's not me, right? Because he knows what I don't know. He sees what I do not see. This is why we're called to not judge according to the outward appearances, Lots of people's outward appearances are the same person to person. But what's going on inside the hearts of them can be vastly different. Their behaviors, equally wrong. How they should be viewed, very differently. Very differently. Right? And, and I'm not always in the position to see that. For that reason, I think it's vitally important for us to remember that we should be doing a lot of judging of issues and behaviors, but that it's not really our job to judge the people involved. Like, that's problematic on many levels, right? To judge the behaviors, but to be very careful about judging the people. So it'd be something like this. I can sit across the table from someone and we can get to know each other a little bit, and I can have a conversation, and they can say something to me about what they did over the weekend, and I can look at them and say, you know what you did was wrong. But what I can't do is say, because what you did is wrong, you are a fill-in-the-blank. They might be a fill-in-the-blank, but they might not be a fill-in-the-blank. Their behavior does not necessarily mean they're a fill-in-the-blank. Their behavior might be driven by something that I don't see. Now, here's the, here's the wonderful truth about it is, you might be given the opportunity to get to know someone well enough that you can start seeing the things that drive them behind the scenes. And that can be really helpful to know. But you're only going to know that if they let you in. The one who's qualified to judge it and sort it all out and sentence it properly is God. I'm not qualified for that. I'm not qualified for that. The last thing to mention here is that all of our judgment should be tempered by the way we want to be judged. Now, I just want to say this very, very gently. We need to remember, remember the old saying, people who lives in, live in glass houses ought not throw stones? If, if we were to say something like, what percentage of the population is guilty of sexual sin? How many of you would agree you'd have to put a pretty high number on that percentage? Could we agree on that? But could we also agree that there's a wide variety of human 
capacity to find ways to sin. We're very creative sinners, right? The point would be something like this. When you spot someone else's sin, look at their sin with the realization that the way you look upon their sin is an invitation to God to look at your sin in the same light. Because while your version of that sin may have been a little different, the likelihood of you being guilty of the same category of sin as them is very high. It's very high. It's why, and you've heard me say this over and over, it's why I have such a problem with this selective way that in Christianity the word abomination has been thrown around. Because in the Old Testament, the word abomination is applied to a lot of things, many of which are problematic for me. These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. And it starts with a proud look. So before we get all high and mighty and start throwing around, you know, your sin is an abomination before God, we better be careful because we just made a judgment as right as it might be. But we did it forgetting that the standard by which we're going to be judged is a God who can just as easily look at us and say, oh, really? You want to throw out the A word? The abomination word? Well, how about I hold you to that standard? And look at your sin as an abomination. Right? We need to be careful the way we do this. We need to be careful the way we do this. Please hear this. Did you, you remember the first one? You must judge. Don't go soft on judgment. We're required to do this. But the spirit with which we do it needs to, needs to be transformed. It needs to be transformed. Judge according to the standard that you want to be judged. Identify the sin. But please hear this. The man or the woman who has had his heart broken by his sin and has seen the seriousness of it and has repented profoundly will look at other people's sin in a different light. Pharisees have room to look at other people's sin and come down hard on it. People who know the brokenness of needing the forgiveness of God, look at sin in a little different light. They can still call it sin, but they look at it differently. Our hearts need to be transformed by this. All right. I need to close quickly. One other key text. I can do this. I know I can do this. I can do this. I'm going to leave the next slide alone. I know how to do this. God, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. I'm, going to, I'm just going to uh, uh, do this, this verse, and I'm going to close. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. But to me, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you, or, the King James reads, judged, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. 
For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. It's a very important passage on how we understand judgment. So just the key ideas from this. First of all, you and I are called to be trustworthy, faithful people. May the Lord give us grace to be trustworthy, faithful people. Can I just say this? How many of you agree that trustworthy and faithful are not flashy words? They're not flashy words, right? Could I just say today that as Christians, it would be good for us to, praise, to place a very high premium on solid on substance above style. Okay? That there's a lot to be said. I mean, you know, if, if, if you're watching social media or you're watching, you're watching whatever, you might look at your spouse and say, you know, you're not all that exciting. But if you've got stable, you better get on your knees, thank God, and hang on tight. Teach them how to be exciting. <laughs> Help them out, okay? I, listen, I'm being serious here, right? Two people can live together, but, but we need to learn to appreciate and value highly the things that God commands. And when he looks at a man and he says, well done, good and faithful, if you've got good and faithful in your life, get on your knees and thank God. Because you got a lot these days. You got a lot. Faithful. Trustworthy. Good and faithful. These are words that the Christian faith upholds as virtues that should be deeply admired. They're good things. Now Paul says here, I'm not, I don't care if I'm judged by anybody. It means nothing to me. I don't care. It's a very small thing if I should be examined by you or by any human court. But there's two sides to this, like there are to everything. We need to remember that what other people think of us matters. What other people think of us matters. This is the entire book of James, that our faith is shown by the things that we do. Our faith is shown by the things that we do. In the eyes of people, God is able to see faith in the heart. People are not. They see faith by our conduct. And that matters. The fact is, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, that while God looks at the heart, people do look at the appearance. And it does matter to some degree. Because as Christians, we understand that is our testimony. That's the thing that either draws them to Christ or repels them from Christ. They can't see the faith in our hearts. All they can see is the effect of faith in our hearts. So when Paul says what he says here, he's not saying, hey, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks of you. Do whatever you want. That's not the point here, right? What, what we are and how we live and what other people see in us actually matters. The flip side of that that Paul is pointing to is this. 
How many of you are, are thankful that we're not called to live in the fear of man? That's Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. We're not to live in the fear of man. So let me just tell you this. I don't know how else to say this. But I'm not going to be able to avoid the fact that in my day, to live as a man that is faithful to God is going to mean that people around me are going to accuse me of things that are not true. So please hear this. Don't be afraid of that. Like, don't bend to the evil of our day thinking that you can be nice enough to attract them to Jesus. There's no reason to come to Jesus if there's no such thing as sin. Right? There's no such thing. We have to face the fact that being faithful to God means that we're going to care what people think about us and we're going to live in such a way as to not offend and to attract people to Jesus as best as we can. But if there's a choice between pleasing God and pleasing man, we're going to have to please God no matter what they say about us. Now, do it nicely, do it nicely. But my brothers and sisters, I'm not going to be able to bend in order, this is where I have to live above the fear of man. I'm not going to be afraid of what you think of me for being faithful to God. I refuse to bow to name-calling, to the labels. I refuse to bow to it. I cannot, because I'm here to please my God. To please my God. You know, I didn't put it up there, but one of the things that Jesus rebuked in the Pharisees was their love for the praises of men more than the praises of God. We should live for the praise of God. That's what matters to us. What Paul says here is a warning to us. Not everybody needs this, but people like me need this. Part of his, I don't even judge my own self. That is, avoid excessive introspection. Like some of us have the ability to pick ourselves apart endlessly and we just got to be able to take a deep breath and live life every once in a while and trust the finished work of Jesus is good enough for us. And I'm preaching to myself now. Because if you've got that perfectionistic tendency, you know what a bondage introspection can be. You know what a torment it can be to always find fault with yourself. Paul's not recommending moral carelessness. He has, is recommending this obsessive need to, to, to perfect ourselves. He is warning us about that. This passage also teaches us the value of a clear conscience. However, as important as a clear conscience is, it doesn't make us guaranteed of being righteous. Sometimes we just don't see things clearly. What Paul says is that, that I'm not conscious of anything against myself, yet by this I am not acquitted. I'm not acquitted. So live with a clear conscience but recognize that that doesn't make you necessarily innocent. You know, every once in a while, something points somebody out, somebody points something out to us that we didn't realize about ourselves. We need someone to show it to us, right? We're not by this acquitted. Clear conscience is important. Last thing I'll say is this. What Paul ends this whole discussion with is this. There is a God, and he is the one who will judge properly both our deeds and our motives. He will judge properly both our deeds and our motives. Why? Because he's the, he alone is the one that is qualified to do that. 
He alone is the one who sees all things. He's the alone. He is alone in being the one who knows the whys behind the what's. He's alone the one who's qualified to do this. So, so I'll close by saying that this. My brothers and sisters, when it's all said and done, don't lose heart and don't lose hope. Because no matter what happens in the world around us, nobody's going to escape the fact that there is a judge. <laughs> they can, they can la, 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 all they want. And we can see the world go haywire because of it. But when it's all said and done, he is still on his throne and he is indeed still the judge. And the final word is not going to be written by postmodern relativism. The end is going to be determined by the judge of the world. By the judge of the world. And he will do it rightly and he will do it fairly. Amen? And we can put our trust in him. We can rest in him. Now, live in the light of that and please hear this. And live harmless as a dove and wise as a serpent in our day. It's a mixed-up day. Understand the principles involved in judgment. Understand where the lines are. See clearly and live it out in your day and, and walk it out for people to see. Amen? Amen. All right. Um, I'm going to ask you to close this way this morning. I, it's 11.30 on the dot. I should be done for, for them, but... Let's just take a moment. We're not going to sing. Let me just take a moment to, to, uh, to ask you to reflect. My brothers and sisters, let us find rest in our hearts as we remind ourselves this morning of who God is. Let's remind ourselves that there is one who is the judge and who is qualified to judge. And let us be quick to repent when and where we need to do so because it just so happens that this judge is gracious and merciful and he's inclined to forgive for the sake of his son Jesus Christ. And so if you come to him and you call upon him, you ask him for forgiveness, my brothers and sisters, he will not fail to forgive you. What weighs on your conscience? Get rid of it. Get rid of it before him. He's quick to forgive. Know that this is a judge that welcomes you and invites you and you can run to because he's made provision for you to receive his forgiveness. So honor him this morning. And let me just say secondly, don't let your heart get consumed either with fear or with anger about your day. Have mercy and pity upon people that can't see clearly. They are lost in darkness. And in their sin, if they die in their sin, they will meet a judge, and it's going to be a very painful and rude awakening. So when you hear them speak and you see them act, let your heart be moved with compassion because they're living self-destructive lives. Deceived and self-destructive.
Let us be moved to see clearly and with hearts of compassion, knowing that the good news is compassionate hearts, merciful hearts will receive mercy. They'll be judged by the same measure they judge. Take a moment and, and just in silence there, respond to God quietly the way he would speak to your heart this morning. We'll close in prayer in just a second. Our Father, which art in heaven, I will skip to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Thank you that you're a God of mercy. You are not confused on the issues of right and wrong. You're a holy God. And our morality should be defined by your word. Forgive us our trespasses, the ways that we have violated your truth. And help us to forgive others. Lord, have mercy on a world that seems bent on going mad. Lord, would you give us the grace to live in our day? Would you give us the gift of clear sight? Would you give us the gift of, of sensitive consciences? Consciences that we endeavor to keep clean. But consciences that are always open to being shown things that we don't immediately know about ourselves or see in ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would give us a willingness to hear from your spirit, to be convicted. Help us to love people that don't seem very lovable. Help us to look upon everyone we see as a person made in the image of God that is desperately in need of salvation. Help us to be grateful for the salvation that we have received. And help us, Lord, to be moved with compassion to share the gospel with those who are in need. Deliver us from the spirit of our day from the confusion and the anger. Lord, I, I pray that we would see clearly the schemes of the devil, the schemes of the evil one, the ways that he's endeavoring to whip this world into a frenzy. And Lord, I pray that that by the power of God's Spirit, we would stand up as your people. Lord, give us the grace to live lives that are pleasing to you. Make us faithful people. May our lives be epistles that are known and read of all men, lives that draw people to the Savior. 
deliver us from evil, I pray. We acknowledge that the kingdom and the power and the glory all belong to you. You are You are the, the judge, the only wise God. You are the king, immortal, invisible. This is who you are. We bow before you. Lord, through our lives, may, may who you are be made known and help us to rest in who you are and live our lives in the peace of knowing that our God reigns. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Whew, a lot of brain power for me today. So thank you. Thanks for being here this morning. May the Lord uh, bless your week. Don't forget to bring food for the picnic next week or have it ready so you can go home and get it quickly. Look forward to fellowshipping with you next week. God bless you.